Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Money Talks. This is Hugh Meyer. Hope you're doing well. Happy New Year again. Very excited to be here today. And just to remind everyone, we started Money Talks to connect thought leaders and business experts and help deliver actionable advice to entrepreneurs and small business owners. And today, I'm excited to have back a returning guest, a friend and colleague, Nick Heller of Symmetros Capital. Nick, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to... Uh be back on the show and, and have this conversation with you. Same here, Nick. Super excited to have you back. Lots to talk about. Uh, let's let's dive right in. It's been a crazy start to 2021. Maybe uh, just give everybody a quick background of yourself and then we'll, uh, we'll hop in. Sure. Yeah. So I've been investing in real estate for just over a decade now and done a lot of different things. Um, I run a company now called Metro's Capital where we, uh, we essentially have been investing in um, strategies around multifamily and residential. And I've also been, um, in recent months, writing a newsletter. So it's one of these creative projects that was born out of the COVID crisis. So I have that and uh, Metrics Capital and um, excited to uh, get into this conversation. Save here. And uh, definitely excited to check out the newsletter. So let's dive right in. I mean, it's been a while since we last spoke. Um, obviously, uh, we, I believe we spoke, it was in August. Things were kind of still kind of cloudy. Uh, we're still dealing, you know, obviously we're today still dealing with COVID-19. Kind of maybe give us a quick 30,000 foot view of, of, of your view on real estate as it kind of, we left 2020 and are now going into 2021. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that since August, you know, that there's a lot has happened and then nothing has happened in, in a sense. Um, we got through the election, or maybe we got through the election. It's, it's unclear, I guess, still at this point. Um, we got the vaccine news, which was really positive, you know, for real estate for a moment. We were opening up here in Southern California. And it looked like schools, you know, might even have a shot at reopening in, in this 2020-21 school year. Um, and then, then things got, you know, kind of crazy on the COVID front. And it, it started this third wave, which has hit Southern California, where we live, really hard. But it's, it's hit all over the world, and it's kind of set things on pause. But looking at from the standpoint of the markets, you know, some things have, some clear trends have actually emerged that I think are real and actionable and, and worth, you know, considering for long-term investments. One is housing. Housing is on fire. You know, I, I wrote my first or my, I think my second newsletter on, on the housing market. We think, or I, I think that the COVID crisis has unleashed a sea change in the demand curve for housing and, and that's likely to continue. Um, so that's one trend. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We can get into that later. Um, another one is that, you know, there's a sense if, if you follow the price action for publicly traded securities, there's, a, there's some trends that have emerged from that. So, like, I'll, I'll give you one example. The hotel industry looks poised for a comeback. That's what the market seems to be forecasting. So, if you were to compare, you know, for example, Hilton stock with, you know, retail, a retail REIT or something like that. The market's forecasting a, a much quicker return to normalcy for the hotels than it is for the malls, for example. Um, same for office. Office is still down. You know, if you look at the publicly traded REITs, they're still down 30 and 40%. And so there's this, di this dynamic where the market's forecasting some things are coming back to normal and then has some big questions lingering about some other ones. And the big questions that are lingering are, what's really going to happen with office? And what's really going to happen with retail? Um, so, and, and we can get into any of these sectors because I, I, I wrote my my last piece on the office market, which I think has some really interesting questions um, that are that could pr produce some like very um, unusual dynamics in the market. So why don't, yeah, yeah. Why don't we Why don't we start there? I mean, that's a great yeah, because that was going to be what well, was going to be definitely one of the talking points. So why, why don't we dive into uh, what's going on in office? Sure. Okay. So office is, is fascinating. Um, it's a huge asset class. It's it was considered pre pandemic to be sort of like the equivalent of buying like a very safe government security. 
if if such a thing exists in in the world that's what it was that's what these things traded at before and the covid crisis has really started to sort of put a giant question mark on the viability of that assumption and it, what's been interesting about this uncertainty is the way in which the established market participants have been attempting to construct a narrative around this return to normalcy. So if you pay attention to the people who make a living out of buying and selling and leasing offices, they're willing to admit that there's going to be some pain in office, but they're, they're not really, they're not forecasting anything too dire. So for example, I think it was Cushman and Wakefield, they came out with a piece of research a couple weeks ago where you know, they did a global survey, they uh, talked to all their clients, they talked to all their brokers operating in the space, and they came up with this forecast for office vacancy. And it, it was a multi, they had base case, worst case, and optimistic case, but essentially they're forecasting something akin to like 17 to 20% vacancy in office. Wow. So for reference, going into the pandemic, we were at like 13 so, okay, so it, it's a material increase. But if you, if you kind of take a step back and look at historically, um, the last print in that range was like right after the technology bubble collapsed. So that's, they're, they're thinking like, okay, this is like a bad recession. So that, that's what the establishment is thinking. But then, you know, I started getting into the research. You know, you hear, if you pay any attention to the news, you hear all these you read the headlines, oh, Pinterest paid $89 million to drop out of a, a lease and XYZ company is uh, announcing permanent work from home. So I started doing the research and I, I was keeping a list on a notepad and the list went pages and pages. And then I found a, I found a website where I don't even know why this, this individual, this group of individuals is doing this. I never, could never really tell, but they've compiled a list and it's over 2,000 companies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And so you start to think about that, right? You're like, okay, you think about the financial incentives of the executives running these corporations. You think about the cost of some of these high these expensive offices. And what we learned in COVID is that you can run large segments of your business without an office. It doesn't mean office goes to zero. It's not a binary thing. Right. But I don't think a garden variety or even a bad recession is the answer that we're going to end up with. I think it's something far more severe is on the horizon um, in office as a result of, of what we've learned. You know, I, I can see it already. Private equity companies are going to have like a, there's going to be a private equity company started with a specific business plan of buying out companies who have big uh, office exposure, cutting that out of their cost structure and improving the EBITDA based upon that, just simply doing that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it presents this really, interesting uh, situation in the market for sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was a, that was a great update. There's no question. Um, this continues to be a very fluid situation. Um, you know, we're definitely getting reflationary signs, if you will, in the, in the, you know, in the public markets over the last week uh, for, you know, as we're recording here in the first week of the year, the markets have, as we know of, have been going quote unquote gangbusters um, and, and the one narrative that I can read from all that is, is that of reflation um, here, at least in the first quarter. So we'll have to see where we go um, there after that. It's, you know, obviously along the lines of office, you know, you and I have also discussed in the past is, you know, I guess yeah, this topic of migration and this quote unquote death of major metropolitan areas. Maybe let's dive into that a little bit as far as how that's, you know, how that's been moving along. Yeah, the narrative is definitely still out there um, in in the in the world and social media and what in, in the media cycle. Um, I think one one thing we we kind of know is that this phenomenon, which drove the early stage of the migration of young people moving home with their families, that definitely happened and it was huge. There was a, a Pew study that basically tracks the um, percentage of I forget the cohort. I think it was maybe 18 to 30-year-olds living with their parents. And it had, it had been on a steady uptick pre-COVID. 
But then there's a, there's a print in 2020 where it just, it's literally like a vertical increase. And so that happened. And, and you can see that. You can see that in the dynamics of the big cities in New York, LA, and San Francisco in particular. Uh, then there, there's this other narrative out there, which is kind of around the housing boom, which is, it's not just young people, it's families who are looking at life in the big city and thinking like, man, there might be an alternative. I could go live in a lower cost jurisdiction. I could keep the same kind of employment opportunities. I don't have to pay for private school. And so, you know, I know anecdotally that's definitely happening too. I don't think that's that big of a cohort. Um, I don't have any data to support that. Just It's just my hypothesis uh, based on what I've seen here in LA. Like what I've seen in LA is it's not so much that you get pure out migration. Right. So people aren't just like flocking in droves to Texas, at least among my network, but people are definitely shuffling around the city. So if you live downtown or something, or if you lived in a, an apartment, you're looking right now to live in the Valley or live in studio city or find space on the West side or whatever, just it's, a, it's, it's movement within the market, which I think the data suggests that that's happening in the New York area as well. And uh, it's definitely happening here. Um, I think what we saw yesterday, I guess it was yesterday or two days ago, is, a, is another data point in this migration story because Georgia just elected two Democratic senators. You know, I've been investing in Georgia for Correct. about 10 years. And the population just kept growing and growing. You know, it, it had been a quiet success story. Like Atlanta added like a million people or something in the last decade. Wow. It's, it's incredible, right? And so you start to think about it. Like prior to this election cycle, I, I never really thought about it. I started thinking about it when Beto did a, did a credible job against uh, Ted Cruz in that Senate election. I was like, okay, so that, you know, we, there's this trend of people moving from the Midwest and California to these lower cost jurisdictions. They're probably going to be more inclined to be Democrats, at least when they first get there. And uh, what we saw in Georgia was the, the consequence of that. Uh, and, it, it, you know, getting into politics, if you think about the future, if the, the people who think that this is like, this trend is, is here to stay and it's going to be massive, like people who think there's a mass exodus from California are right, then Texas is going to be democratic. Very soon. It's going to be, you know, it's not next election cycle, but maybe the one after that. This really has a chance to shake up the whole system. Um, but I, I think to, to just to round out the discussion, because there, there's a lot of like narratives and not a lot of data. I think the truth is somewhere in a less extreme state than either sides of this argument. There's a lot of movement. There's no question about the movement, but I don't get, I don't get the feeling that it's anything like the migrations that we've seen in the past. So like, if you think about a migration, like the movement North, when African-American populations fled the South, for example, humongous percentages of the population left, like 50% or something. And we're seeing, I think, in the single-digit percentage or something. It's nothing like that yet. Doesn't mean it couldn't get to that point, but it's not there yet. Yeah, very super interesting. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I love the, you know, bringing it back to, you know, what ha what's gone on in these these elections. You know, we're not here to talk politics, but it's the reality uh, that of that you're speaking of with respect to the migration, I, and, you know, into places like Atlanta. And I was actually going to ask, you know. What are you seeing as far as, you know, into these, I guess, call it minor, major metro areas, if you will, like Denver, Nashville, Atlanta, you know, places like that, that, and, you know, obviously Austin, Texas is talked about every day as the new Silicon Valley. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what's happening there uh, as far as, you know, as far as, as growth and, you know, is it maybe getting frothy, so to speak? Yeah, um, it's a good, good question. I think, I think part of what we're seeing in all of those markets is that, and, and this goes back to the housing, the housing market analysis that I did recently, is that housing is not a, is not a good that you can just produce, right? So if you have, a, if you have like a crazy run 
of demand and then all the houses get bought up in a, in a neighborhood. It's not like you can just turn on the factory and we have a two or three month delay. It takes years to produce any kind of real supply in these markets. And so in a place like Nashville or Denver, where you've seen a lot of COVID related migration, they, their, their prices, their house prices are going crazy. And it's because of this sort of supply problem that they have. And, and that, that's a national problem. Anywhere where you like, if, if you could rewind the clock and like buy up all the land in these places, <laughs> you probably could make, you could have made an incredible return. But now it's got, kind of gotten ahead of itself. Right. Where the home builders are now like, oh my God, I don't have any inventory. I sold out all of my inventory. I got to go buy some land. I got to, I got to, and they're paying up. They're doing, they're doing what they have to to keep their pipelines full. But what it means is that their returns are just going to go down. So I think that the, there's, there's reality to the migration to those markets, but the numbers that you're seeing printed in the headlines about the inflationary pressure on house prices in those markets, they don't reflect like some massive number of people, more so than they reflect just there's no supply. Right. And so it doesn't take very many people to say, I want to move to Nashville to cause that market to go crazy. Uh, so that's what I think is happening in those, those smaller places. Great. Um, also, you know, we were talking that that brings up a point, you know, as far as the supply and demand dynamic, maybe talk a little bit about what you're seeing as far as risk appetite um, across, you know, across, you know, different asset classes in, 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 you know, real estate, whether it's multifamily, office, industrial, et cetera. Yeah. This is another, another interesting uh, phenomenon. It's, it's kind of been with us the entire time for COVID. So I, I've had a, a number of conversations like this since March or April. And my answer has been always kind of the same, which is that, well, it kind of depends that the risk, you, there's no clear signal it's not like Bitcoin or Tesla, where it's risk on, like everyone is just willing to take that trade. Real estate is, is suggesting different things. So I'll give you an example in the office market. So if you look at the, the share action, the price action of a publicly traded REITs, like SL Green or Kilroy or something like that, that own big office portfolios, they're down and they're down substantially, yep. down 30, 40%. And, you know, we already talked about some of the dynamics that may be behind that kind of a move down, which is like office could be in real trouble. But then at the same time, SL Green, one of those very companies, put together a deal for like a million, I think it was 1.4 million square foot office on Madison Avenue in New York this summer. Multi-billion dollar deal. They put that deal together. They raised the debt and the equity. And so that would suggest like, okay, so there are some people who are willing to take the other side of that trade. Right. We want to do that. And there's some other examples, like there's been some office trades. They have been at discounts to their previously appraised values, but the, the people who made the trades actually made money on them. So these are groups that maybe bought in 2014, 15, and then they flipped them this year. They could have sold them last year for way more, but they still made money on these trades. Um, so you've seen a little bit of that. The, 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 same, um, the same thing is happening in the multifamily sector. And I'm actually, I've been, I've been getting interested in, in a trade involving like equity residential and Avalon Bay for this reason where the share prices of these publicly traded REITs are down, same thing, like 30, 40%. But if you look at what's happening in the underlying market where they own properties, the real estate isn't trading down anywhere near that. It's only trading down maybe like 5%. That's so very interesting. Yeah. So there's this weird dynamic and they're getting like equity residential in particular is getting labeled with this like urban exodus narrative. But if you actually unpack their, their holdings, they don't own a lot of super core urban stuff. Like here in Los Angeles, for example, they own a bunch of stuff that you would consider suburban. It's very, it's, it's not in downtown LA. I mean, they have some urban, urban properties. So there's, there's some interesting like disconnects between the public and private markets that might suggest that you could put on a trade like equity residential or Avalon Bay and make some, some good short, short-term returns. There was another one that hit the news just recently, which 
kind of makes this point. There's, there's another big REIT called Brookfield that owns a heavily, you know, criticized portfolio of retail and office. And they're, they're taking their, or considering, or they're, or they're doing it. I, I can't remember if they actually are pulling the trigger on this, but they got $27 a share of book value and they're taking themselves private at like 16 bucks on the open market. And that $16 was like a 20% premium from their actual share price. So there's these, these interesting opportunities where the private market dynamics are different than public and um, could produce some situations like Brookfield or equity residential that are worth investing in for the short term for sure. Really interesting. Just just to go back to like your example on SL Green, do you as far as their underlying portfolio, do you see that as a function of like the level of transactions has clearly not been what it was? Do you see that obviously impacting kind of where that I guess the discount may be? You know, there's a lack of transactions. Do we really have a good sense of you know what the underlying values really are? Yeah. I think that's that's part of the, the issue, part of the problem. And you know, the, the other thing about the office market is that the, the the stock market is not always a great forecaster of the future, but sometimes it is. And in this case, I actually think that the way in which these office weighted REITs are trading, it it's more reflective of, of the true path that we're going on than than maybe in other in other sectors. I think the, the market is kind of seeing through the bullish narrative of like, oh, we're just going to, companies are just going to return to the office and occupancy rates are going to go, you know, they're going to be down in the short term, but they're going to come right back up. I think people are seeing through market, the market is seeing through that narrative is like as false because there's, there's just too much, there's too many powerful incentives on the other side of it. I'll give you a couple of anecdotes. Like I went to law school and so now 15, 20 years later, I guess 15 years later, all my friends are partners at big law firms, multinational law firms, and every single one of them, they're telling me that the internal conversation is that they're significantly reducing their office footprint. 50% is the number I'm hearing. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. And, and these law firms, they are literally the anchor tenants of all of the best buildings in every major city in the world. And so you, you say, okay, they drop 50%. What, is the, what are the consulting companies going to do? What are the banks going to do? There was another firm, publicly traded firm that does like, they basically do recruiting. So they have like a similar model as a law firm, but they, they get paid, you know, huge fees for recruiting executives. They have 50, 50 offices, 50 cities. They're, they're cutting it down like 70%, I think is what their CFO said. Because a company like that, they don't need an office. They need a conference room or a couple conference rooms in one of these buildings, but they don't need an entire floor or anything. So uh, I think those, those, those buildings are in trouble. And, and that's what you're seeing with like SL Green is, is a reflection of that. Okay. Thank you for that. That's a great, that's a great segue to kind of the next, I guess my next topic or questions is what are your thoughts and, in, in you know, your research telling you or that you found regarding the CMBS world? Because we're talking about, you know, you're talking about these substantial reductions in many places. And there's people who obviously own the debt on these buildings, on these pieces of real estate. Yeah. How do you see that kind of playing out? Because clearly there's a concern that maybe this year there's going to be some major problems there. Yeah. CMBS market is signaling something interesting as well. So I, I don't know what month this data dates to, but it's relatively recent. And the, the data that stands out to me is essentially, if you look at delinquencies, the latest delinquency report, hotel and retail are printing big numbers. I think it was like 17 um, 17% and 20%, something like that, um, of, of loans that were actually in like default status, not delinquency. There's a whole bunch. I think the delinquency is like 40% or something. Like that. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's like 17. An office was surprisingly very low. Office was like barely up from the pre-COVID number. It was like less than 2%. And that might just be a function of time. It might be a function of the capitalization of the people who own offices. 
So a lot of the companies who own trophy assets are well capitalized. And so they're not inclined to like miss payments where people who own retail and um, hospitality are often more sort of entrepreneurial and have a different access to capital. But I, I do think that um, I haven't looked into the, the types of trades you could do on these securities, like like what Ackman did with the um, credit default swaps. But I've, I got to believe there's going to be opportunities like that in office in particular. There's just too much of a disconnect between that and what, what we can see coming. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, thank you for that. Do you see uh, as far as, um, kind of the government been stepping in and, and, and rent moratoriums. Do you think that's just, I guess, delaying the inevitable, so to speak? Yeah. The, and, uh, the, the rent moratorium stuff is, is an interesting question. It's become a political thing there, you know, here in California, for example, like there, you're never going to be able to evict somebody for COVID related debt. That's not going to, it's just not politically. That's not happening. And, it may have you may you may be allowed to in other places, but I suspect that the large sections of this country are going to prevent that kind of stuff, at least for a multifamily. So you're going to end up with a bunch of credit, uh, essentially credit claims. That's what they're going to convert them to. Is like you can't evict, but you could attempt to you know get your money returned to you if you're a landlord for that. So I, I think. There's a, there is a big number out there. I don't exactly know how big it is. I think it's less than what they're forecasting. You know, I've heard one number as high as like 70 billion. I don't think it's that high. Um, the, the, the most recent stimulus package passed a few weeks ago had like 25 billion for landlord support. So may, maybe the number's closer to that than 70 billion. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think that the commercial, the commercial moratoriums will end soon, as soon as this vaccine rollout gets going. And then right. the residential ones are basically, they're never going to end um, for all intents and purposes. Great. Where do you see without, you know, without giving away, any, you know, if you're a trade secrets, if you will, or special sauce, where do you see some of the opportunities, you know, I guess, unfolding or potentially coming out in, in 2021 in real estate or in general in real estate yeah we so i'm really bullish on the housing market i'm bullish on the return to city life i think that narrative has gotten overblown i have some i'm beginning to collect some data in my own portfolio here in, in west hollywood of some signs that are making me optimistic you know, like I, I had two people from Facebook move into some of my buildings. They moved move from San Francisco. I've had four people from New York move into my buildings in the last month. So I think there, there's a sense in which like a place like LA could become like a big beneficiary because it's it's got a lot of COVID-friendly aspects despite our case count. Like right. it's a beautiful place to be in the winter. It's kind of spread out. Um, so I'm bullish on, on that and looking for ways to, to express that trade. You know, I mentioned one earlier, like I think equity residential is worth looking at. I think there's a chance that that particular security really rallies into the reopening of the world. I think, by the way, all of these, I think the office ones, the reason why I'm, I'm really bearish on office, but I'm not willing to like take a negative position like buy puts or anything like that or short these companies because one, they do have stable cash flows. They're, most of them are well capitalized. I think they all rally into the reopening. So what you saw with Hilton, like Hilton stock went crazy yep. into the vaccine news. Something like that's going to happen across all of these, these beaten up asset classes, except for maybe retail. Retail is kind of like an, a little bit of an outlier because retail was like dying prior to COVID. And now it's it's really dying. Um, there's some strategies of retail though that are interesting. Like I've been looking at some buildings. Uh, this is like a, a little bit of a niche thing, and it's hard to express this outside of actually buying buildings. But for example, like there was a trade on Rodeo Drive of, of a building at like almost eleven thousand eleven thousand dollars a square foot for a building. Um, there was another one on Sunset for some garbage retail. 
for like 1500 a square foot. Um, but what's interesting about it is what, what these trades point to is the fact that, yes, you don't want to own malls. This is a disaster. Right. But if you own some really walkable real estate that's like prime stuff, you can charge outrageous amounts of rent for it because it's the only thing that these brands have. Right. They need a place, even like fancy brands like, um, or not fancy brands, but like internet type brands like Glossier. There's a Glossier in our neighborhood and there's like lines out in front of it every day. 30, 40 people standing there just waiting. Like even with COVID, like the line at Glossier is longer than the line at Urgent Care, you know, waiting to get tests. So that kind of thing. <laughs> that, that's LA in a nutshell right there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll stop right there. <laughs> yeah, but, but I like that. Um, and then in, in, in the public markets, so just taking a step back from real estate, I've basically been long Bitcoin, gold, and gold miners for a long time, like way longer than the narrative around those. So I've actually, I've had the best year on, uh, in my publicly traded portfolio in a long time. Um, I didn't expect... Bitcoin to do what it's been doing. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a great portfolio. You'd definitely be one of the leading hedge funds in the in the uh, in the global sphere with with, with that uh, with, with that portfolio makeup. It's it, it that, those are some really great uh, data points. Thank you for you know, especially where you're talking about, you know, the people that have been, you know, we have that this narrative that the media keeps hitting on you that the death of the big cities, but what they're not reporting on is what you just said. People from San Francisco moving into LA, people from New York moving into LA because you, we have this, you know, different kind of metropolitan makeup, if you will, where, you know, you, yes, you can be downtown, but you can move out to, you know, the West side of LA or the beach, or you can go North and you could get that suburban feel. And, but yet still be, you know, 30 minutes or so away from any part points in LA. So it, it's an interesting point that you bring up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, in a sense, I'm talking my own books. I live in LA, and, but I, I actually believe that. I believe LA is kind of uniquely positioned. LA has its problems. You know, we have, we have a governance problem um, with the way this, this whole area is set up with the county and the 88 cities and Los Angeles, the behemoth. We have the homelessness problem. We have a, a like a brewing problem around at the state level around people and corporations in particular relocating jurisdictions. Right. To get away from the political environment here. And that's a real phenomenon. Like I, I serve on some sort of coalitions, business coalitions and public service coalitions to try to like make a difference in public policy. And what we're hearing is that like this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of companies that are going to try to relocate uh, and it's just getting, getting uglier, uh, which is problematic for, for the state. Um, but hopefully we can do some good work and reverse some of that uh, flow. California is still one of the most amazing places on the planet. So I, I'm, I'm still long-term hopeful that we can overcome those challenges and, and think that, you know, there's other things, there's other positive things happening right now that overwhelm those. Like, for example, like one of the other bullish narratives out there, which I'm looking for a way to express a trade on is the production of content is going absolutely crazy. Yes, it really is. And, and there, there's been some real estate transactions that reflect this, like Blackstone bought into this big portfolio of studios that was owned by Hudson Pacific. There was another studio transaction, like people essentially just making huge bets on on content. And I, I think that's that trend from what I can tell is going to be long-term and massive uh, as a result of COVID. No question. I'm not sure if you saw, um, you know, the producer of Fortnite bought a huge mall in North Carolina. Have you heard about this? Not, no. Yeah. To play along what your story about the content. So yeah. So uh, I can't remember the name of the company. It's the, it's the owner of Fortnite and, and I don't know where they decided to, to basically plop down a huge sum of money and take over basically a vacated mall in a pretty up and coming part of, uh, 
North Carolina. I think it's Cary. Um, you know, North Carolina is another place where obviously, you know, real yeah. estate's done quite well. But, you know, to your point of what's happening, kind of the world of content, you're, you know, there you go. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy world. Like, I didn't even know this, but my, I have two young kids and, and they have a babysitter. And she's this young woman from Brazil. And she was just casually talking. The subject of TikTok came up. And this girl has 670,000 followers on TikTok. Wow. Yeah. And is making like, now she's making serious money from, from the, the various ways that people make money on TikTok from Amazon. She has this deal with Amazon where she's doing stuff. Like it's crazy what can happen. And she started doing that this year, or I guess 2020 in COVID and just bam, 700,000 followers. That's, incredible. that's it. That, that is incredible. Yeah. Um, that's what's, that's the new world. It is no question. Well, I've um, I've definitely asked a ton of questions of yourself, and what I've done recently with with my guests is I want to give them a chance to ask me a question or two. So, uh, you know, feel free to fire away. So yeah, uh, re- I'd love that. Okay, cool. I got a couple for you. Please. So, I know you've you've spoken to on the podcast some people that are very involved in the cryptocurrency world. And I'm curious what you think about the, in particular, the character of the, the dialogue and the narrative on Twitter around crypto. Wow, that's that's a great question. So, you know, to to, to answer that succinctly, I think like everything, you know, you have to follow, you know, follow the people that are that have for the longest period of time have delivered a very kind of consistent message um, with respect to, to, you know, digital assets, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And there's definitely a, a small handful of people that, you know, are on Twitter and, and now all over the television um, being interviewed pretty, you know, pretty extensively, you know, Anthony Pompliano, Pomp is, is, you know, a friend of mine and he's, you know, who's probably the most recognizable face. Um, you know, I, I feel like he's been on CNBC almost every other day. Um, Jason Williams, someone else who I rely upon was brought on, you know, e, you know, Charles Payne's uh, money talk on Fox news. But again, these, and there's, and there's people here that are in, in locally here in Los Angeles that have really delivered kind of this consistent message all along of, you know, understanding what the technology is, you know, why you should understand, you know, why you should learn about it and, and kind of what the ramifications are of what the government here, you know, our government has done over, it's not, not just this year. I mean, this has been going on for you know, over two decades as far as the Federal Reserve, you know, keeping interest rates very low and suppressed you know, printing money, the government printing money, obviously response to COVID. And now you're seeing this manifest itself and people are looking to, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular as a safe haven. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. Like, I, I'm not a big user on Twitter, but I pay attention. And what's been interesting to me about it is that and it's, it's actually somewhat scary in a way, and I'll, and I'll explain that in a section, in a, in a second. But there's like a religious undertone to the cryptocurrency narrative on Twitter, for example. And there's like these, there's all these like dialogues where like, it's like that scene in Star Wars where Anakin is like turning into Darth Vader and he's like, <laughs> we're not, if you're not with me, then you're against me. And so you get all these people on Twitter, like if somebody sells their Bitcoin, for example, and publicly says it, they become like public enemy number one and they get like all these accounts. Like it's really crazy. Um, and the, the religious nature of it, it's, it's very similar. I think what got me thinking about it is it's similar to the Trump phenomenon and the politics of identity. You're either, you're either Bitcoin or you're not. And the, no one's allowed to have a nuanced position. Like, Hey, I believe in Bitcoin long-term and maybe it's gotten a little over skis right now. I'm taking a break from it. Like you can't have that position. Um, and I find that to be interesting. And I, I don't know what that means for the share price um, or the price per coin, but I got to think that it means that it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to reversal because of that, because it's it's a clearly an emotional type thing. What do you think of that? 
Yeah, there's no question that there are, and I and I see it every day that people, you know, like to your point of when they say they're, you know, taking profits, there are people who are steadfast that, you know, they're holding it. I, I don't know if forever is the right word, but, you know, they're, they're holding it as their store of value. And, and they believe that, you know, that, that GD is now out of the bottle and, you know, the, the whole money printer goes burr, uh, you know, joke, if you will. And, yeah, I, I, there's no question there are there's some people who have a um, an extreme view, and you know, yeah, there's no question. Like, listen, it's a risk asset, and like anything, when you know it it gets more and more attention, and more and more people think it's going to continue, then that obviously sets up, you know, for a more vulnerable situation. And and as we've seen, you know, could be a 20% pullback, 30% pullback, and it can happen in a 24 hour period of time. So like everything, you know, manage, manage risk accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. You see the same thing. I've noticed the same dynamic in the conversations on Twitter around Tesla. It's very religious. It's very, you're with me or you're not. And people are doing the same thing. Like, publicly proclaiming their their personal financial success stories about oh i bought tesla and now i'm retiring from my job you see this kind of stuff and it's it's similar to the dynamic that that took place in other sort of financial bubbles i'm not sure that tesla or bitcoin is a is a a true financial bubble clearly like there's exuberance out there but the question that I think I don't have an answer to yet is, is that exuberance irrational? And I really think if you step back, like I think the gut reaction for like a value investor is to be like, oh yes, it's obviously irrational. But then if you step back and you look at the world, it might not be. Like if you had money and you're looking and your job was to try to maximize your returns or put it someplace, holding currencies of these governments, given what's happening, doesn't seem like a good idea. Holding your fixed income doesn't seem like a good idea. So you, you, can, you can actually rationally walk yourself into a case for holding cryptocurrency, holding gross stocks, holding Tesla, and, and not necessarily be irrational. All that. And, yeah, go ahead. And no, and, and real estate to that effect as well. Uh, yeah, uh, that's, it's, there's, I guess there's two ways I can respond to that. I guess first, you know, there's, there's an argument, um, you know, I, I don't know if I'm buying into this yet, but there, it's a, a, an argument that has merit that we're into this roaring 20s, you know, redux, if you will, um, because the, the level of innovation, you know, the technologies that are being developed, whether it's in, you know, telemedicine, biotech, digital assets, artificial intelligence, there is a lot of activity going on right now in the venture capital world. And a lot of the, not a lot, but the, the, the few venture capital people that I pay very close attention to, like Andreessen Horowitz, um, Lux Capital, some of these firms, they, they are full throttle right now. Now, granted, they're 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 investing. You know, they're putting their 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 partners' money where they think they're going to get the biggest returns. But there is an awful lot of capital trying to find not many. You know, not there's not a ton of deals out there. But the ones that are in these areas of technology, the money is finding them right now. Um, so there is potential merit that you know we're on the cusp of something. Again, that said. Like I like everything I was saying earlier, you know, always be, you know, always have your hat, you know, or your eyebrows raised for risk, you know, because it always comes out of nowhere. We yeah. saw that last year. Now that doesn't mean there's going to be another pandemic or or or, or, or I, I don't know, but always, you know, be prepared, you know, be prepared for uncertainty. Trying to game risk is much too difficult. So you know, always make sure that, you know. Your, your 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 positions are sized accordingly that your risk is 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 maintained um, because you know to your to your 
anecdotes or your points about Tesla, you know, one day it could wake up and the stock could be down 50% because of something. And, and you know, the, that risk is out there. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the risk is there. Um, okay, another, another question for you. What do you think about what happened in D.C. on Wednesday? Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> political question. Yeah. I, I mean, without taking up too much time, I mean, it's awful. There's no bones about it. It's, it's absolutely inexcusable what took place. Um, you know, the fact that the administration acted the way it did, it's inexcusable. Um, and, you know, I, there's, obviously there's a lot of concern for, for how this all went down. And, and clearly, you know, when the president is out of office, he may have a very stiff price to pay deservedly so you know my concern is how how did the how did our i guess houses of government get so overrun with such ease uh, to me I, you know I, I listen i know there's a very big political element to all this and and there's a lot of anti-trump and and listen that's all justified but when I step back and realize, how is it possible that that just took place? How did, was there not National Guard, what, what have you, FBI, FBI uh, where, you know, Capitol Police? How did that just happen? To me, you know, that, that scares the living shit out of me to see something like that happen. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I, I think it's a function of, so like democracies, they tend to deal with the security of their institutions in a different way. It's a historical kind of remnant of the, the point of democracy. So like the White House has always been like an open place, you know, like in the, in the Civil War period, like you could like stand in line and just get a chance to go talk to President Lincoln and there's stories about how certain presidents, President Lincoln included, would just spend all the time just dealing with these visitors and it would interrupt their day. And, and uh, so there, there's a sense in which dem democratic institutions remain open and with right. visible security for a reason. But I agree that, that there should have been some kind of response or some thinking about what you would do in the event that a mass protests like that did happen. It's again, it's one of these things where the government probably just never thought about that. Um, or hadn't thought about it in a long time, or maybe they thought about it and, and wrote like a, a handbook for it and they put it in some file and Trump, Trump's team never opened the file. Yeah, yeah something like that. But um, yes, it's interesting times, man. I, I'm, I'm working on something. I'm not sure when I'm going to publish it, but I've been thinking a lot about our era and its relations to the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of Caesar. Like there, there's some like podcasts out about, you know, the potential for that kind of thing to happen. Um, but what I've, what, in my research, I, like 10 years ago, I did a bunch of research on the ancient world. I got really interested into it and I started dusting off the books and I realized in going back to that is that we're, we are on the same trajectory as the Roman Republic it's eerily similar. Two-party system, one that was catering to the elites, one that was catering to the broader population, massive wealth inequality, um, polarized politics, elections being bought, openly bought, right? Whoever raises the most money wins the election. The same exact trajectory as Rome. But we're way early. So like Donald Trump, there's some, there's some episodes in the Roman, the fall of Roman, where these like two-bit politicians rose to power and attempted to do something. That's kind of more where we're at. Donald Trump is not a Julius Caesar type. He's not even close. He doesn't have the skill or capabilities or, or anything to, to pull off something like a Julius Caesar. I don't think we've, we've seen that kind of individual yet, but it's possible. Uh, and if, if, if what happened in Rome happens in America, it'll come out of nowhere. It'll be like, somebody that everyone underestimates and then all of a sudden they're like the most popular person on planet earth. That's how it happens. Um, 
it's fascinating, fascinating time. I hope it doesn't happen because yeah. obviously America is, you know, the great place in the world, this place of freedom. And, but it doesn't look good. This diet, this political environment's really, really sad. No question. Um, so we'll we'll conclude here in a second. But yeah, along your your you know connecting the dots with Julius Caesar, uh, people uh, audience. If you ever have a chance, check out Neil Howe's Fourth Turning. Um, it's if you if you've heard of Neil Howe, um, I suggest you read it because a lot of these points we're talking about now. He goes into some uh, great detail. He's uh, probably the foremost expert on this subject, and has some very scary points within his book that you know these things are unfolding as we speak. So. Um, yeah, have to, have I, I really to be mindful. Book, yeah, I read that book a couple years ago. It's really, really worth reading. I totally agree. It's like it, it makes you think about things in a different way. The framework that he and his partner, because I think he co-wrote that with somebody, they came up with this really interesting framework um, for how to think about the generational right. politics and, and the way that generations interact with each other that is very useful to understand the world. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, well, I really appreciate your thoughts. Maybe let's, uh, as we're concluding here, if you can offer, you know, maybe one piece of one thought or, you know, piece of actionable advice as, uh, as we conclude. One or, or more than one. One is fine. Um, I mean, look, this here, here's a point of optimism, even though it seems like a real like dark time, I, I do believe that, this year is going to be is going to end up being like a memorable year in a positive way. This vaccine stuff is going to work. It's going to roll out. The case count is going to go down. The transition to power is going to be over here relatively soon. And I, I think there's there's more opportunity on on optimistic narratives than there are on the negative ones. And so just thinking about the context of investing and planning for business. That's where they're at, where I'm trying to focus. Is like, how do I contribute to right. this resurgence of of relationships, resurgence of business activity, resurgence of civic engagement? Um, I, I that's what I'm trying to focus on. And I feel like if we all just do that, this could be this could be like the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, like you, you mentioned a few minutes ago. Like, there's just so much pent up demand for for life that um, I'm trying to contribute to it. That's great. Uh, thank you for that, Nick. That's uh, a fantastic way to conclude. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, let's look that the cup is half full and not half empty. So, uh, you know, Nick Harris, thank you again for uh, for being here with us today. A lot, a lot to digest, and uh, looking forward to uh, you know again talking to you again in the near future. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Enjoy the conversation and uh, keep up the good work. And yeah, let's talk again soon. Absolutely. Uh, thank you again, everyone, for being here for another Money Talks podcast. Remember to please check out the YouTube channel, rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and we will be back with another episode uh, next week. Thanks again. This is Money Talks. Take care.